Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'm glad that you're worshiping with us. Make sure to keep your Bibles open this morning to the book of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 2. So in my family, we have a pastime that it it kind of comes and it kind of goes. Uh, It's fun and it's also frustrating at the same time. It's It's the pastime of putting puzzles together. Now, I include myself in the we only for the sake of my partition patient trophy role in the process of making the puzzle because once the edges are done, I'm pretty much done, you know. But, uh, you know, of course, as we, notice how I introduce myself as we again, Uh, as we get down to the last five pieces of the puzzle, of course, I'm miraculously, I'm going to make my way back to the table and help finish. Now, for the majority of the puzzle-making world, not next-level competition-type puzzlers, Terry Buffard, if you're here, I'm talking to you, Um, but for the majority of the puzzle-making world, three things tend to happen. We have a reference for the picture on the box, we put the puzzle together, and then we take it apart, put it in the box, and then we do it all over again some other time. Now, there's obviously exceptions to these rules, but generally, that's how it goes, Reference image, build it, take it apart and repeat. So in that process, there's three principles that are at work here. The first is the principle of the intended image that never changes. Just like our slinky. Every piece of the puzzle is required. No matter how many times you put the puzzle together, the image intended by the puzzle creator never changes. So that's the first principle. The second principle is that what we're dealing with here is uniquely shaped pieces that only serve their purpose by being set into that intended image. That's their sole function. And third is the principle of no matter how many times you rebuild that puzzle, no matter the order that you put the pieces together, every piece is still necessary and it still creates the intended image of the puzzle creator. Every time you put your hand to it to put it back together, it looks the way that it's intended to look. That image of puzzle making serves as a good illustration of the story of God dealing with his people from creation to glory. You see, at creation, God had an intended image for his creation and for humanity. A world in which the creature is in the midst of the Creator with no separation. The glory of God is ever-present, and the glory of the creation is to function in the way that God, the Creator, intended it. The image was ideal. It was as intended. However, when sin enters the world and remains in the world, it's as though the jigsaw puzzle press gets taken down and pushed onto the intended image, severing the pieces, still uniquely shaped, but those pieces that make the ideal image fall apart, and you can't distinguish it. But the beauty and the power of the gospel of God is that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God is putting the creation back together into the ideal image that God had intended it to be. That is the very nature and definition of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the fundamental reality that through the substitutionary death and sacrifice of Jesus for humankind, that God is restoring all of creation to what he intended it to be, including every part of us. When Jesus returns, 
This is when the ideal image is going to be restored. And this side of heaven, we don't get that complete image, but we get to see glimpses of it. That's what we call the inbreaking of the kingdom. We start to put the puzzle pieces together. We start to see a semblance of the image, and then it comes apart. Other times, if you're like me, you feel like just a pile of pieces that don't resemble the image that God has intended for you at all. But there's going to be a day that fully and finally the image is restored. And our work this side of heaven is to try to replicate that image as much as possible here on earth. The church's role and individual Christians who called on the name of Jesus, that might seem like a daunting task for us. But thankfully, the Bible reminds us that it is, in fact, possible and that we're not alone in it. Throughout the scriptures... This same principle of remaking the puzzle is at work all throughout Scripture. Intended image, God's will for his people, building, restoring of God's people, a tearing apart, sin enters in, causing the image to be taken apart, and then rebuilding again, restoration once again into the ideal image. And as we continue in this series, rise up and build a vision for building God's church That is where we are going to see the continuing story of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah helps us to understand how this is worked out with this remnant in Israel that's left in Jerusalem. But it's also going to give us a framework for today in understanding how to build God's intended image for his church. But even more than that, this is going to apply to each one of us. Because each one of us has a severed image of what God intended for us. And we're in the process of being rebuilt individually. How many of you want to be rebuilt into the image that God has for you? That should be the aiming point of every Christian. Pastor Verlin taught last week that over a four-month period, Nehemiah had waited in prayer with this burden that we saw develop in chapter 1. And he was praying for success before King Artaxerxes until an opportune time that God created to answer that prayer. And it's marked by the phrase that we saw last week in Nehemiah 2.8, in which he says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of the Lord was upon me. But in that passage, we start to see Nehemiah's vision for what God was calling him to start to take shape in Nehemiah 2.5. In which it says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. It's rebuilding the puzzle. And it's on the basis of this story that we continue this morning in the passage that we see. And now, Nehemiah finds himself in Jerusalem with this God-shaped vision that God has given him of rebuilding Israel's puzzle. Rebuilding God's intended image for that portion of time. But something emerges in this passage. Putting the pieces back together, it isn't easy. The intended image to be restored is important enough to him to do it, even though it's not easy. Because God's intended image for his people is what matters most. But it's going to start with a restored image requires God-sized resolve. We're going to see that in Nehemiah. Despite Artaxerxes not only approving, 
but actually acting as the benefactor for this rebuilding project in Israel, from the outset you're going to see opposition and threats. And those opposition and threats are going to come in two forms, the outside world and the internal damage. According to this passage, once Nehemiah leaves the right hand of the king, he comes to the governors of the province, the text says. In essence, what's happening here is all of the leaders of the surrounding territories are coming together around Judah, and now Nehemiah, who has been commissioned by the king, he's on a peer level with them, a place that he wasn't before. Now, consider for a moment what this looks like for all of these governors from the surrounding provinces. Judah has no real leadership. It's a pile of rubble. We'll see later in this uh, story that there is a quasi-genocidal sense about the people of Israel where the most influential people are creating an environment of oppression over those who are less influential. Essentially, Judah at this point is a non-threat to the surrounding territories. But now comes this favored one from Susa to restore the people of God. And the result is that there is outside opposition from the world... And we're introduced to these three characters that we're going to see periodically throughout the, the, the story. Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab. These three governors take particular exception to seeking the welfare of Israel because their areas are directly bordering the territory of Judah. They're surrounding Judah. But why would these three men get in such a tizzy over this dilapidated city with just a small remnant of people because they know their history. They know Israel has a name among the nations, that Israel has been a people that have been established as God's chosen people. They know that when God's people returned to the Lord in the past, when the intended image of God's people had been restored, that spelled trouble for the nations Because God's ideal image is wholly different from the world's ideal image. And at this point, the people of God, they're a non-factor in the ancient world. But as history would remind these three men, as the puzzle pieces of Israel gets put back together over and over again in Israel's past, to seek the welfare of the people is to seek to restore what God had once established, and that means a threat to those who are not aligned with God. Now I want to stop there for a moment. I want to bring that into today. Is the church a non-factor in the world? If we stopped meeting together as this small expression of God's kingdom, would the non-Christian community around us notice? That's a hard question for us to ask ourselves, but that is really where Israel has found itself. But now with a resolve for change, a passionate resolve to rebuild what God had once intended to be, led by Nehemiah, Israel now has become a threat to the world's ideals. And friends, when the gospel collides with the sensibilities of the world, it is going to create the space for transformation, but it's also going to create hostility. It's one of the marks of the church, essentially. Jesus says himself in John 15, verses 18 and 19, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Jesus in his proclamation and spreading of the gospel, he, he brought transformation. But it also brought hostility from the outside world. Not hostility for hostility's sake, but hostility naturally flows from the world when God's intended image comes against the world's flawed image for us. The problem for Judah is that they had bought into the world's image. And God had dismantled their puzzle and now begins the work of rebuilding what God intended. And that's not going to look like the world and the outside world doesn't like that. God's image for Israel had not changed. The pieces had just been taken apart. It was the passionate resolve of Nehemiah and the work that God called him to to put the pieces back together. And despite the opposition of the outside world, Nehemiah has confidence in the vision that God has given him and that it's rooted in the good hand of the Lord. That God is putting together an intended image for his people. And Nehemiah rightly ascribes the work not to himself. When he is opposed by these three men, he says this to them in verse 20. He says, Then I replied, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. In that statement, Nehemiah is saying two things. First, he's saying that God's going to prosper their way. That God's going to create his intended image, not him. But the second thing is that he says when God creates his intended image for his people, the world has no claim over it, has no power over it. This is why Nehemiah is able to navigate the hostility of the outside world because he has seen transformation happen already. He has especially seen it, as he, and he needs to see it as he arrives in Jerusalem because while you've got outside influences, a God-sized resolve is required when you're faced with an impossible task. The second point of opposition that Nehemiah faces is the internal damage. He'd deal with these three jokers later on. But for now, up to this point in, in Nehemiah's story, he's only heard about what's happening in Jerusalem. But as he arrives in Jerusalem now, he is seeing it firsthand. He sees it with his eyes. They're not just stories anymore. And as he walks through this city alone by himself, strengthening his resolve, he has no one to guide him to see it. He just goes. And at some point, the destruction is so great that he has to get off of his animal and he's got to trans traverse the, the, the damage by foot. And as he looks on this rubble, here's what he knows. This is not God's intended image for this city or for his people. But imagine the task. In total, based on the geographical points that are marked in this passage this morning, Nehemiah inspects about a half a mile of a project that he's supposed to superintend. A wall that stretches the equivalent length from where I'm standing all the way to Fort Ontario. In some spots as high as 40 feet tall, all to be built by hand. The opposition he is faced with is looking at a wall that seems like an impossible task. But Nehemiah doesn't see it as impossible. Here's what he sees. He sees a completed wall. He sees God's intended image of what should, can be and what should be. And here's what else he knows. The wall is necessary. Not for the sake of a wall, but it's for the sake of showing the people what God might do in them in creating the intended image for Israel. 
You see, Nehemiah knows two things here. The first is where he began. He knows that the good hand of the Lord has been upon him. Nehemiah has already seen God move in seemingly impossible circumstances. He has moved in the heart of a seemingly unmovable king. And if he could move in that king's heart in such a way that compelled him to restore his enemies and to pay for it, wall building? That's easy. (laughs) What Nehemiah sees in all that rubble are all of the necessary, uniquely shaped pieces required to build what God intends to see happen. God's going to complete his work. The work that he put in Nehemiah's heart because God's hand is upon it. But with all the pieces of the wall there, there's still one more piece that's necessary. Restoring God's intended image requires an inspired community. Nehemiah is not going to be able to accomplish this work on his own, and that was never the intention. Nehemiah's role for the remnant is to be a catalyst to the people to rebuild themselves into the image that God has for them. Notice that Nehemiah, he's not providing any new information when he comes on the scene, right? I mean, it isn't as though Nehemiah showed up and the people said, oh, well, we didn't realize all this rubble was here. We didn't realize that the nations had no regard for us at all. No, in fact, it's quite probable that the reason that Nehemiah's brothers came to Susa in the first place was because they knew that there was a problem, but they lacked leadership. They couldn't crystallize the vision. They needed a catalyst. And that's what Nehemiah provides. He comes and he tells them a vision of what could be, a vision of what God intends, built on what he had already seen happening. Look at verse 18. It says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me and said, Let us rise up and build. So they said, Let us rise up and build, and they strengthened their hand for the good work. And that's exactly what happened. Everyday people putting their hand to the work. If you go home and you read chapter 3, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see priests rising up and building. Levites, the worship leaders, rebuilding. Government officials, rebuilding. Daughters, women, a part of the rebuilding. A man who makes perfume for a living, rising up and building a wall. Rebuilding in front of their own houses and taking up the time to rebuild in front of the spaces where the rest of their community lived. And what was Nehemiah's role in all of this? To inspire them to the work and to keep them focused on the image that God had had intended for them. That's it. He comes in and he tells them that the work that they want to see done is possible and that all of the pieces are there and they are sufficient for the work. Nehemiah showing up didn't make the opposition from the outside world go away. His arrival didn't make the internal damage any less devastating. He didn't share anything profound with them that they didn't already know. He simply came to remind them of God's intended image and shared how God had his hand in bringing them to this point of rebuilding. And he inspired them with the charge to arise and build a work that they knew that needed to be done 
for a people who just needed to know that it could be done. And if this wall could be built, what can God do in restoring the intended image of the nation of Israel? That was the unfolding story of Nehemiah. And here's what matters most. God's intended image for his people. That's what matters most. Friends, I'm going to remind you and I want to keep reminding you. Pastor Verlin is going to keep reminding you that the language of devastation and rubble in these, in these passages, that's not where we are as a church. Their circumstance is not our circumstance. But their situation serves as a good analogy for where we are as a church. The place that we find ourselves in as a church is a place with puzzle pieces that are out of alignment. And that probably shouldn't surprise anyone here who's been here for a considerable amount of time. And you actually helped identify that we have some things that are out of alignment. And if you're visiting here, and if you're just getting to know us, I'm not afraid to share that with you. I'm not afraid to share that we've got things that are out of alignment. I hope that that shows you our authenticity. That we're not afraid to tell you that we're a church that's in progress. We want you to be in progress with us. But back in December, we did this peak profile. And you told your church leaders the areas that you felt were out of alignment for us as a church. And you identified four areas. Spiritual maturity. Developing healthy spiritual leaders. Fellowship and community. And individual and corporate prayer. Those four areas. Here's my calling, friends. It's to be a catalyst to help put those pieces together with you. Notice I said with you and not for you. (laughs) Everything that you've said that needs to align with God's ideal image, I've seen it too in the last 15 months. I've watched it. I've seen it. I've observed it just like Nehemiah did. But I've also seen you. And I've seen, and here's what I see. What God has given me a vision of. A vision of what we can be and what we will be. Just like Nehemiah in this story, there's not a single piece that's missing here. Every uniquely shaped piece for God's intended image for this church as we rise up and build, it's here. So what is God's intended image for this church? It starts quite simply with a vision. It's a vision that we never quite get to, but we're always striving for this side of heaven. And as our leaders have met over this past year now, we feel like we have a sense of what God's intended image for this church is, a vision for this church. It's not very profound. It's very basic, actually. Our vision is to be a people who know Jesus Christ, who grow into spiritually mature followers of him, and go build his kingdom through the spread of the gospel to the lost. Friends, that's as basic as we can get. That's our church vision statement. That's our vision for you as we move forward. And to summarize it and crystallize it, we want to know Jesus Christ, grow in Jesus Christ, and go for Jesus Christ. I hope that that's what you want for your life. That's going to be our aiming point as a church, and everything that we do is going to be filtered through that lens. As the worship team comes back, I hope that you see that there's nothing profound in that. (laughs) A new program isn't coming. So don't look for a big reveal for a new, uh, you know, flashy program. We're going to get back to the basics, friends, of knowing Jesus Christ and growing in what this says for us and going and telling the world that hell is real and they can avoid it by knowing Jesus Christ. 
And the reason I know that we have the ability to do this is because I've seen what Nehemiah has seen in the last year. The good hand of the Lord is upon this church. There is an intended image that is being restored. And this vision statement is just a point of reference for us to say, this is where we're going. Friends, if you're here today and you've just been testing us out, you've been, you know, kind of dipping your toe in the water of Oswego Alliance Church, this is who we're going to be. This is who we want to be. It may bring hostility from the outside world, but imagine what your life will be like if you purpose to know Jesus Christ, to grow into a spiritually mature follower of him, and to go and replicate yourself out in the world. Imagine what kind of church we would be if that was our ideal image. And imagine what our community might be like as they see that building in us and saying, I am desperately desperate for that. It won't come without challenges. It won't come without your cheese getting moved a little bit. If you've been here for more than a minute. It may come with some challenges for those who are new to say, we're not moving quite fast enough. That's okay. But we are resolved to do it. I'm resolved to help you get there as a pastor. Pastor Verlin is resolved to help you get there as a pastor. Our elders are resolved to help you get there. We're going to work with purpose with the same type of resolve that Nehemiah had, knowing that there will be outside influences that are going to challenge that, and knowing that there are some internal pieces that are going to have to shuffle a little bit. And we're going to reinforce the things that are good, but all the pieces are here. We know it's going to seem like an impossible task. More than one of you has said, there's no way that you're going to be able to get some people to move with our church. I say the good hand of the Lord is upon us. I believe that every single person who calls this place their home has a faithful heart to want to see this church move forward into God's intended image. I'm hopeful. I'm faithful. I see an intended image. But it's also going to take every single one of you. There's not a single one of you that doesn't matter for that intended image. Every one of you is uniquely shaped to fit into the intended image that God wants to project through Oswego Alliance Church. The people who know Jesus Christ, who grow into spiritually mature followers of him, and go and proclaim the gospel to a lost world. If that's what you want for your life, you're in the right church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the intended image that you have for us. It's not my image, God. I know from your word, I can say with 100% confidence that our leaders have not manufactured the fact that knowing you is a value that we should intend to strive for in this church. That growing into spiritually mature disciples, that that's not manufactured by us, that's given by you from your word. And that to go and proclaim the gospel to a lost world, despite the hostility for the sake of transformation, that is 100% from your word. We believe, God, that you have given us this simple statement to know and to grow and to go as a means to live into the intended image that you have for this church. And God, we pray 
that as we face outside struggles, as we face internal struggles, we pray that we would remind ourselves that the good hand of you, God, is upon us, your people. And that what may seem impossible, what may seem like it's going to take forever, what may seem like it's going to be uncomfortable, God, that it's all possible because you are the God who does impossible things. And Father, as we come together as a church, we know that there are uniquely shaped pieces here that you want to use that aren't even making themselves available on the table yet. We pray that they would be committed today to say, yes, I want to be a part of that. And I'm willing to do my part in putting my hand, strengthening my hand for the work. We pray for the puzzle pieces, the uniquely shaped that aren't even a part of this fold yet. That they would make their way here, God, so that we can see them strengthen their hand for the good work. God, in all of this, we trust in you when we can't trust ourselves, knowing that you are faithful to rebuild your intended image for your church and for each person that's here. And God, if there is somebody in this room today who is yet to experience the transformational change that God wants to do through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, we pray that they would acknowledge that today, that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that they would believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And if that's you, God says as you proclaim and you believe that you are saved and that you are uniquely shaped piece that he's going to use to create his kingdom. So if that's you today, I pray that you would respond to that gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.